Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 194, and today's guest is Paul Bilodeau, CEO and founder of Filtered.ai. Did you know that resumes have been around for over 500 years? Yet, why is it that resumes haven't really evolved? Sure, maybe a LinkedIn profile is a digital version of oneself, but companies generally look for a copy of your resume when you apply for a job. Paul has built a career largely focused on pushing the industry forward with a better way, as he was the founder of a company that was early to market in terms of using video for job interviews. Well, his latest company is Filter.ai, which is helping companies solve a very hard problem, and that is hiring engineers. Sure, you could look at a resume from an engineer which has lots of technical buzzwords, but how can you be sure that that individual is qualified to tackle the work that needs to be solved? Filter.ai is focused on helping companies make the shift to skill-based hiring as it is focused on determining an engineer's true ability versus the words listed on a resume. Not only is it more effective and efficient, but it is also making the hiring process unbiased, which is also important for helping companies build a diverse workforce. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like tips for non-technical founders on hiring engineers, Paul's background, including his professional basketball career in China, Paul's entry into entrepreneurship with Pangea Connect, and being early to market and the decision to step away from the business, all the details on filter.ai and how it all works, experience raising money during the pandemic, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to add a subscription to VentureFizz for your company. We provide an employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our very targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. A subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and so much more. Send an email to info at VentureFizz.com for more details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Paul. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Keith. So we're going to talk about Filtered, which is a company that is really bringing uh, or solving a problem that a lot of companies face, and that's hiring engineers. Um, but before we get into you know, your background story and obviously all the great things you're building with Filtered, I, I thought it'd be helpful. I saw you wrote a blog post that was published on uh, the Techstars blog about non-technical founders and hiring that first engineer or first couple engineers or maybe even a technical co-founder uh if you're not if you don't have that technical background like what should you be thinking about when you are trying to make that hire when you don't know what you should be asking or how to qualify somebody yeah um it's a question that uh you know i think we is near and dear to us being a startup and and being you know we started a we work and we would hear non-technical founders all the time uh talking about you know, building this, doing interviews, not knowing what questions to ask, but, um, you know, it's pretty, you know, pretty simple. Um, well, not simple, but one, one thing I'd recommend is not to worry about the being technical and, and having a conversation, but, um, you know, one is, is, is making sure that, you know, when you're, you know, short-term decisions have long-term impact. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of, you know, founders, uh, sometimes maybe outsource uh, their, their, you know, their first MVP or they, you know, hire someone that is building uh, a non-scalable solution. So uh, we see it quite a bit and, you know, starter home or, you know, a trailer, you know, people think they're building the foundation to a house when you're actually building the trailer that you live in 
until you get some traction until you actually build the house. And, you know, that can blow through your friends and family or your initial round of funding um, very quickly. And it's, it's something that I see all the time. And uh, I'm not a big fan of outsourcing, especially if you're, you know, you're, you have a technical product, um, you know, so I think it, it's a way to build kind of culture internally is, is to kind of have it in-house. Um, and, 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 and there's a lot of reasons. Um, resume, there's a lot of tips around resumes. Uh, one, I don't like to look at the resume first because uh, it just kind of introduces a bias as it really just says, you know, where'd you work? Uh, where'd you go to school? What's your name? Uh, and then all the companies that you worked in, and I have bias, right? Um, you know, against some companies and, and good or bad. Um, but, you know, I think some quick tips are really, um, you know, pay attention to, to how many keywords they use. The more, if they're using a lot of keywords, um, we have some data that kind of, that proves this, but uh, using keywords and not tying it to a use case, right? Like um, just because you use React uh, and, uh, you know, some other skills, right? Uh, to build the product, um, not tying the why you use this to build something, um, using the same bullet points over and over and over again. Uh, you know, it's really the data that we have is if somebody uses over 10 bullet points in kind of their skill summary, uh, they fail over 81% of the time on coding um, because what they're really doing is trying to game the applicant tracking system to put enough keywords in there that match the job description so they get shortlisted. Um, you know, building a rubric, um, it's something that we've helped companies with. Um, because you know, a lot of people are show up to an interview like I'm just getting to know them. That's not the, that's not how you hire. Um, you know, you want to identify what what skills or or you know, it could be hard skills or, or you know, technical skills that you that you feel that you need and and what you're trying to get out of the interview. So have an objective going in, not just default to how'd you like working here or questions that. Yeah, you know, shouldn't really be a part of the interview process because it's you're trying to qualify in or qualify out a candidate. Um, you know, like avoiding, uh, the hiccups, you know, you need early on, um, you know, hiring someone that doesn't want to do the work, um, hiring someone that's too high level, um, that's been there and done that. Um, you know, especially when you have somebody that's been there, done that, what they do is they tend not to pay attention because it works somewhere else. Doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Uh, you want someone that doesn't say, um, I have better things to do with my time. You want someone that just kind of rolls up their sleeves and, and gets it done. Um, and then, you know, like, you know, leaving the guesswork out of hiring, you know, if you, one thing, um, you know, you can do basically is some sort of skills evaluation, right? Um, it could be a take home challenge, um, which is, you know, common uh, and, you know, have somebody grade it, but maybe have a technical friend that can help you out with the process uh, doing the interviews. Um, you could use a filtered um, and, you know, or HackRank or Codility or, you know, any of those you know, other products. Um, but what we try to do is, is take the guesswork out of, can they do the job uh, upfront? Um, and then you just focus on the soft skills. Let's rewind the clock because uh, we're going to talk more about filtered and obviously how you guys help people with that yeah. problem soon. But let's uh, talk about your background. So even going way back, like where'd you grow up? You know, what were you like as a kid? Where'd you go to school? <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a local. I grew up uh, on the South Shore in, uh, in Cohasset. 
And um, I, what was that like as a kid? I mean, um, I liked video games. Um, my nickname is No Friendo uh, when I was really young. We're <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of a tinkerer. Um, and, uh, you know, I did, you know, sports was big too because my dad I wanted to make my dad proud, but um, I did, you know, was uh, basketball was my other love besides video games. Um, and so I, you know, ended up um, playing basketball and played basketball in college and playing a little bit of after college, um, you know, overseas and, and so forth. So I, I scratched that itch before going into the workforce. Where'd you play in college and where'd you play overseas? So Northeastern and then, um, you know, overseas uh, played in China and um, just after Yao Ming. So uh, not, uh, not like it is now, but it was getting there. It's, um, it gave me a lot of good experience that I got to tie back, um, which I wouldn't have thought at the time because in you know, 2008, we opened an office in China and because I lived there, uh, I knew how to do it um, and how to kind of recruit someone and what we needed to do to get it done effectively, to get tax breaks, et cetera. So, so take us down your professional journey as far as you know, after you know, the, the basketball career. Yeah. So after basketball, um, you know, I was looking for work to get a knee, knee surgery. Um, I had, <laughs> I didn't have healthcare and I didn't want to get surgery in China. Um, we, so I, I joined Softworld. Um, so technical background, but I couldn't get a job out of school uh, or out of, you know, playing basketball. Um, and, you know, so worked with Softworld doing recruiting, but I was doing all the qualification because I knew technology. And so it's kind of ties back into filtered, right? So I could screen people better than a normal recruiter and kind of gave, gave me um, some insight into the jobs to be done and all of the uh, nomenclatures of, of kind of the industry, which, uh, you know, years later helped kind of build a filter. <laughs> so, um, and so, and then what'd you do after that? After that, I had the opportunity uh, to uh, start U.S. operations for a company based out of India, basically an entrepreneur. Um, he gave me $500,000 uh, that I had to pay back if it didn't work, um, you know, to start off in, in 2006. And uh, it was a great experience uh, because nobody, I didn't have an MBA. Um, nobody would have given me that at the time. And, um, you know, we took that from a two-person shop uh, with no revenue, no customers, you know, to in three years to you know, 25 million in revenue and competing with the likes of like Cognizant for projects. So was the journey into entrepreneurship next? Yes, it was. Um, what I didn't like about the services industry, I like consulting because you get to work in a lot of different domains. Um, so it gives you a wide breadth to see what's going on and what works over here could maybe work in this domain over here and what's old is new. Uh, what I didn't like about, you know, services uh, in some cases were like, look, uh, if you're a dollar cheaper, we're going somewhere else. And um, so Pangea was uh, kind of my first product that I you know, built and built it while I was working at Onward. And, and it was solving a use case that we had, which, you know, I was hiring for teams in China and hiring for teams in India, as well as, you know, folks that were sponsoring visas to bring over and, and put on projects. And you know, the first year was 50 people, which was 300 phone screens that I had to do and time zone differences. Um, and so like, well, I asked the same questions. Uh, why can't I just have them record it on video? 
um, so I could watch it in my own time. And, and that way my wife will want to divorce me <laughs> because of all the time and doing it over the weekend, because now we're hiring a hundred people and I'm looking at maybe a thousand interviews, uh, in two months. So, um, I built it, but basically I got an office at, uh, at the CIC and um, my day office was uh, over in uh, the American Twine building in Kendall. And I would go to the CIC at night and hack together uh, Pangea and, and um, you know, it worked, right? So it, it um, I didn't have to spend the time doing all the interviews, you know? So the people that I did focus on, I was interested in, I wasn't coming in cold. Um, and then I wanted to commercialize it uh, and Onward had the, they didn't want to do it because uh, we were in a major recession uh, at the time and um, we're not a product company. And so I decided, felt passionate about it and I'm going to go out and do it um, on my own. And so that was kind of the first product I built. Uh, wasn't the right time. It was a, and it wasn't the right timing. <laughs> well, for context, yeah, for context, this is 2009. And like you said, 2008, 2009, major recession. Video is there, but it's not video now, 11 years later. So talk about video then, because this is still something that doesn't exist, right? Yet you would think mm -hmm. this would be normal now, although maybe we are heading there with the Zoom interviews and somebody's going to figure out the video platform way of doing things. But video is very different then. <laughs> yes, it was. It, it, uh, one, I couldn't raise money because it's, you know, met with VCs locally and, they, why would you want to build a tool for hiring when nobody's hiring? Uh, and, um, you know, talking to HR and like, what, what are you talking about? What video, what do you mean? Uh, it was just too far ahead and, and it really didn't sink in until Apple put the front facing camera on the iPhone. And, ah, I get it. Uh, now it makes sense. And, um, you know, at the time it, it uh, Timing matters, right? And so being first uh, or, you know, higher view, I think, was, was actually out at the time, but they had raised a bunch of money. And, um, you know, we were second to market, and, um, but it was hard to get traction. So, um, you know, we were about five years, six years too early. And how far did you take the business? And what do you, what did you take away as kind of like the biggest lessons learned from that? Yeah, so we, we took the business to about a little over 50 customers, uh, local here, like in the new England area. Um, and you know, re revenue was uh, 20,000 MRR. Uh, and so nothing, uh, and at the time there was a bunch of competitors, uh, that jumped in the space all of a sudden it spark higher and it became a thing. Um, and, you know, I was bootstrapping it. So I, a major lesson I learned is I was moonlighting as my, I was helping another company with a, it was a consulting firm here in the Boston area where I was chief strategy officer at a turnaround um, because, you know, they were failing in 2009 and we were changing from being kind of a SharePoint provider into emerging skills uh, consulting and um, funding, doing that day job and getting distracted. Um, and thinking, you know, I can build this and, and, uh, and do it all at once. You can't, you have to go all in, you have to focus on the customer every single day. Um, and they have to hire folks and that, you know, are here, like you know, starting off in a, we work like we did this time, it was a two person, but two of us, then it was a four person, then it was an eight person, 
and just really kind of focusing on building for the customer. Um, but you got to go all in. You, know, you can't moonlight. Well, and I guess was that the decision that got you to the point where it was okay to step away from the business? Because I think sometimes entrepreneurs get so emotionally attached that they struggle with the step away and do something else where they're like convinced this, the market needs this, you know? Yeah. I think, I think a skill that entrepreneurs, uh, the really good entrepreneurs have is the, is also the, the you got to give up at a certain point. So that, and that's a fine line, right? Because, you know, you could give up too soon and, you know, you hear all these stories about founders that were just about giving up and all of a sudden traction, right? Um, that would have been tragic. Uh, but um, I just didn't see myself, uh, we weren't leaders anymore, digging out, digging out from underneath. It'd be hard to raise with a bunch of competitors in the space. I wasn't passionate. And so I sold it to the consulting company uh, so that they could leverage it for their services. Uh, wasn't a major exit. It basically you know, gave me a, a paycheck for you know a year and a half um, where I was having my first child and trying to figure out what I was going to do next. Once you stepped away from Pangea, like what'd you do next? I spent six months driving my wife from crazy. Um, <laughs> I painted the uh, dining room with idea paint. Did you <laughs> really? Wipe, yeah. <laughs> it was whiteboarding. I thought I was going to take my time. Um, I just was going crazy around what's next. Yeah. And, um, and so uh, and kind of looking at a bunch of different industries and looking at different problems and, um, I was doing some consulting work, uh, where, you know, friends locally that were you know, VPs of engineering and just made purchases in, in big data, um, and didn't get the gold, uh, come in and, and identify a use case. Right. And so kind of an advisory service, um, I had another friend that was working at Hortonworks at the time as a big data engineer and, um, he was interested. And so I brought him in and, and that, uh, quickly turned into, you know, can you just build it for us? Uh, and so we started a consulting company, but it was to build product, right? So our goal was we're going to do data science consulting for Fortune 500 digital transformation brands. And I, with the goal of identifying business problems to build a product also, right? And fund it with a consulting revenue um, and have referenceable customer that's, large enterprise and then scale it and uh we thought it'd be a data product but it turned into the two problems that we needed to solve are one um you know onboarding education which is refactored right so we had uh folks who graduated school uh with, with phds or masters in quantitative fields that lacked experience with the tools so we built kind of like a you know data camp or data quest or code school for data uh 2015 and um, and then we built kind of onboarding curriculum in there too. It's like, um, you want a data scientist with, you know, remote sensing, hyperspectral analysis, GIS backgrounds, PhD and AWS. Um, well, it takes eight, six hours to learn AWS. So why don't we just build a module? So you hire this person right. and then they're going to go through the training as they onboard. And, um, and then we built filtered because I was on interviewing panels. And it was completely broken process and, you know, uh, whiteboarding or, you know, a binary search tree, um, wasn't a proxy for the ability to do the job and it was screening the wrong people in and the right people out. 
So that's kind of where the filtered idea came from. Got it. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk in detail about filtered AI. So talk about, you know, more about that problem you recognize and how you started to build the company, the product to solve it. Yeah. So we, um, so the process, uh, so we were on site at, at, at a customer and, and going through digital transformation, hiring 3000 uh, contract engineers. So engineers meaning uh, anywhere in the company it could be data science, could be big data engineers, could be building microservices, IOT projects, et cetera, um, in the Midwest where the talent didn't exist. <laughs> and they, what, they weren't a sexy brand. Um, they're still our only customer with uh, a staging area for protesters on their campus. And so they relied on staffing companies on the front end of the process to supply them with talent. Um, and uh, so it was taking totally a couple of weeks just to get a resume to say yes or no. Um, and the process was broken. It was a phone screen with HR that consisted of why do you want to work here and technical questions they don't know the answers to, which is highly subjective. Um, and in fact, I, the breaking point for me is when I sat in on one of these phone screens, uh, listening to them ask uh, a JavaScript developer Java questions. And after the interview say, hey, the, you know, those two are totally different, still dismissing the candidate, even though it wasn't the candidate's fault. Um, and then, you know, the scheduling um, of a phone screen with like tech, with, with the technical teams. Uh, it's a newsflash, but most engineers don't like doing phone screens. Um, it might have taken you three to four hours to get to where you are on the code base. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to come out of it. And a lot of them, for one, not good at interviewing or we haven't practiced interviewing. You haven't been told you don't have a scoring rubric. You have a resume that gets dropped off on your desk or is sent to your inbox. And then what does the phone screen consist of? It's just likability. And then you're going to like them usually based on uh, are they like you? Right. So like similar schools or the same school, you know, the companies, et cetera. Um, and that doesn't help you to, to build great teams. And um, and so you have subjective process and then you do a coding interview um, online. And and that we had some issues with fraud, uh, which was alarming. Right. So you might see me and somebody else is on, on Zoom or WebEx or whatever. They're using WebEx. Somebody else was coding a, oh, for okay. the interview, right? Um, and uh, or somebody totally different shows up on site because skill sets weren't local. You're hiring from anywhere in the country, so you're doing remote interviews to hire. And since it was such high volume, you didn't really know. You forgot that interview. So um, then we got to <laughs> how do we how do we prevent that? Oh, let's just take a screenshot and leave it at security. So when they, when they check in, they get their badge. Is that the same person? Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. So that was, those were kind of some of the big problems and uh, that we, you know, we tried to solve and, and the time frame, right? So it took 20 business days for HR to basically shortlist a resume and set up a phone screen, another okay. 10 business days to set up a second round. And so when this whole process, five-step process was over, it was about 80 days. Mm -hmm. And with these skill sets, they go off the market very quickly it also, it's not the same as uh, interviewing at tech forward companies, right? So if you want to digitally transform, if you want to be a tech company, if you want to try to interview like Google, uh, you have to act like it, right? So you can't just um, 
you know, do a phone screen with HR as the first step of the process because that's not the norm with tech forward companies. Right. So, um, so what we decided to do is like, hey, if we're hiring a chef, uh, would we go through all these steps in the process to realize they couldn't cook eggs? Um, or should we just have them cook eggs first? And then they can enter the process. And so that's where the idea of filter came is, you know, basic technical exercise. Uh, and, and within data science for us, people were falling short on the ability to, to code. We needed them to write code. And so, um, and so we just did a very basic exercise and enabled them to do use C, you know, C++, um, R, or Python. Got it. And great analogy with the, the chef. Yeah. So let's talk about filtered AI and like, bring us up to speed today. Like what, how does the platform work and, and more around the whole, you know, how it's helping companies? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we went the other way in terms of like, we started in the enterprise. Uh, our second customer was a fortune 500 customer, digital transformation, um, express scriptures to Dow Cigna. They're, they're still a customer. Um, and then Coca-Cola, we just kept getting pulled in, even though, you know, we we're like, are we a, big company, um, uh, like going after the enterprise or should we just go like everybody else does SMB all the way up? Um, we just get, kept getting pulled in. So, um, you know, what we do typically is we help them to screen for skills that they don't want to hire for. Right. So, uh, we'll sit on the very, we can sit in a couple different areas and we could sit in the very front end. If you go to our like careers page or it's interview now, it's, it's not apply. Um, and some of our customers use that. Um, and you know, so you make it through if you pass and then we have a, you can assign reviewers. And so the team comes in, reviews a candidate. Um, and then there's auto scheduling. So, you know, the problem of, Hey, we really like this candidate. Can you get their availability? They give their availability. And then the hiring manager comes back and says, no, it doesn't work for us. Ask oh, these such days. a nightmare. <laughs> it takes like five or 10 days. That, that was such a pet peeve from my days in recruiting, just the scheduling matching. It was such a nightmare. It's a volley. And, it, and I, you know, I spent a lot of time on site to try to, try to figure out like, well, why are all these processes broken? Like really sitting in and it's like, well, why not just get the availability up front? So we ask candidates for availability. We also uh, integrate into calendars. Um, and then we, you know, we have live rooms, which is similar to Zoom, uh, but it's configured with workflow that's specific to interviewing so that, you know, if I'm the second person on the interview panel, um, I'm not popping in on someone who's not done yet. Um, you know, so it's, you have a waiting room and when you're ready, you just press the button. There was a code pad integrated there um, with, you know, you can do projects. So if you do a full stack interview, even though you know, the myth of the full stack developer we don't believe in, we believe in full stack teams. Um, but, you know, if you're, if you're hiring for full stack, it's come in, you can choose back end or front end exercise, and we capture that. And so that your live coding session, uh, let's build the front end. So if you, if you say, yeah, I choose Python, built the back end, now off that code live um, with the team, you're building maybe the front end with somebody walking you through. Um, or you know, impaired programming. And we also added whiteboarding to it, and um, which you know we were a little bit ahead there. Uh, and then the pandemic helped us because we were building for the future. And then all of a sudden, customers that uh, weren't ready yet uh, were ready because you they were hiring and they couldn't do on-site interviews anymore. My assumption is based on the process that this takes the candidate through. 
if they go through that process, they're, they're leaning in, they, they want to yeah. apply and hopefully get a job at this company. They're not just passing resumes and, you know, spraying their resumes everywhere. They're engaging into this process. And then if they make it, obviously they're qualified, but they're serious about this opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good point. Uh, and, and, and there's a couple of workflows because, you know, we have, um, you know, like Lyft, for example, uh, is a, is, that's a very sexy company at the time and, and you know, still is. Uh, but what they were having, the problem that they were having with the data science team was you're giving someone an offer and they're going back to Google, Facebook, Netflix, Amazon, and getting a counter offer for, and in some cases, the counters from Google were, it's quote, 500 to $1 million dollars. 500,000 a million dollars. And, and so they wanted a big data challenge. And so it's like, all right, well, if the job is to match riders to drivers, why don't we just match riders to drivers with some of the data that you have around New York City? Um, and uh, so, but other companies, you're right, like we may be tested because, you know, HR will say typically, the, you know, the candidate experience, the candidate experience. Meanwhile, like, have you seen your jobs page yet? <laughs> You talk and improve that, and then, and then we'll talk about can experience. Um, we've maybe tested it where, uh, you know, let's compare um, job acceptance rates. Uh, filter was 100%. Um, and, uh, and the ones that went through the normal process were just over 50%. And, and I think it's even higher with, you know, the, the you know, digital transformation companies that seem to be old school that, you know, like a UPS or something of that nature. Um, that don't have the the cachet that some of the other brands do, but um, yeah, it, it's a good point because it you gotta it, you'll have skin in the game by by doing it. However, some people want it to be 27 minutes long, so we recommend you know a shorter one. It's just I just want to make sure they can write a single loop. I don't I and I'm not wasting my time bringing it to the next step in the process. Yeah, no, it saves everyone so much time. So, what's the current stage of the company in terms of you know number of employees, your hiring plans, and you know funding, whatever you can share? Yeah, um, so we we're 15 employees now, uh, lean and mean, um, and uh, you know we've you know we just raised a, a round of financing and and from. Uh, you know, from Andrew Ng and the AI fund, we're the first outside investment um, for, for the AI fund, which is the feather, you know, in our cap, I guess, so to speak. Um, we had to impress the Andrew Ng. Uh, and then Silicon Valley Data Capital and, and TDF uh, led the round, took close to eight months because we uh, were raising in a pandemic. Uh, so it was tough. Uh, growth plans, we're gonna, you know, through the end of the year, um, you know, we're hiring mostly uh, sales, but, you know, DevOps and engineering. Um, we plan on doubling the, the team size within, you know, the next six months. Growth plans ahead, which is exciting. But so what was the experience like as far as raising you know, funding during the pandemic? Because it's hard to raise regardless of situations, whether it's, you know, a good economy, bad economy, but you're dealing with a pandemic and a recession. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, I, I thought I was really, uh, you know, so we raised a seed round in 2019 and, and um, using pattern recognition, you know, everybody says don't fundraise, you know, uh, around the holidays, like January. Um, so my thought was, well, then nobody else does. So why don't we? And uh, it worked. So we got callbacks and meeting setups. We started January 6th, uh, 15 of the top, 20 uh, 
rated uh, VCs got back ready, you know, new year, ready to hit the ground. Um, we had a term sheet by March 4th uh, from a co-lead and that wanted, because uh, we wanted two investors because we knew we were going into a recession eventually. This, I didn't expect it to be a pandemic, but with the election coming up, we can't keep going up and I don't want to raise a, a B round with just one investor. And, um, you know, where they are in the fund cycle, if they decide not to invest, you're dead in the water. So let's get two investors. And then, you know, pandemic happened and trying to start fresh with some investors, um, not being able to meet in person, doing committee pitches on Zoom where everybody's talking over one another. Uh, you can't get a sense for anyone. Uh, it's hard. And, and, you know, VCs, you know, you know, entrepreneurs will say, ah, you know, they're paying it, this and that, but, you know, they have a hard job. Um, and, you know, there's more companies to invest in, but there's the same amount of successful companies and you have to meet the people because you have to believe in also the founders and the team. And if you can't meet the team, how do you write a check? And so um, it was hard. And then, um, you know, so it, it took almost nine months to, to close. So yeah, it was, it was, it was challenging times, but um, you know, and, and the other side is like, you got to close business while you're doing it too, because they're looking at your monthly uh, revenue numbers and, and so forth. And if you throw up a zero, you're, you're not going to fundraise. The only benefit I've heard was, um, you know, that you didn't have to travel as much. You could do the meetings over zoom. You didn't have to fly to the West coast or fly to wherever the VCs are. Uh, it became an efficient time-saving process from a meeting point of view. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that could be one argument, but uh, yes, it's more efficient because I didn't have to fly to California. Mm -hmm. uh, it was for first, you know, two months of the year we were on the road every, you know, so it was a road show. Um, however, the ones, you know, with the AI fund, it was close to 16 meetings. So it just became more and more and more meetings, talk to more portfolio companies. Did you get, you know, talk to five Stanford professors that are, teach computer science and machine learning and deep learning to make sure that this is a real AI company. Mm -hmm. um, so they really looked under the hood because uh, they couldn't meet us, right? Mm -hmm. um, but definitely saved, it saved money in traveling and was more comfortable. No more red eyes. That was great feedback as far as that contrarian point of view, like don't raise during the fun, you know, during the holidays because you won't, but, but you, you're like, you know what? Sounds like the ideal time. So that was contrarian. Yeah. Worked out. Something else I noticed that you had out there of a, a contrarian point of view was you know, most companies, when they raise, they're like, we raise money and it's like, woohoo, right? Yet you're like, I don't think companies should really celebrate when they raise, right? So, so what are your thoughts there? Yes, uh, my thoughts are, uh, if they got a mortgage and I'm not taking a picture of it and throwing it on LinkedIn, right? Um, <laughs> they're selling a piece of your company to an investor um, because you couldn't earn enough revenue to sustain the business. And now you do it for rapid growth, but you know, early on, you're really not hitting rapid scale. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think money, the goal is to have a product that serves the customers, like celebrate the customers. Cause that's what matters because you can quickly uh, take your eye off the ball and think like it's money. Money is the thing. Yeah. We raised this much from this, you know, venture, uh, Venture capitalist who's on 27 boards. That's not going to give you any time. It's not going to know what you're actually doing. Um, and I think I think it's a danger. It's a slippery slope, and it's dangerous to to celebrate that because money also makes you stupid, right? 
you can have a, you can make a mistake on hiring because it doesn't really matter. You can get a really big office space, and then a pandemic hits, right? Um, you know, so I think from a culture point of view, it's not to celebrate the fundraising. We appreciate it, but that wasn't the goal of the business to become friends of venture capitalists. It's to build a great company. Yeah, exactly. Now, something else that I, I saw out there was, um, you know, it's shocking that resumes still kind of exist like business cards like why do business cards still exist and i think this might actually be the death of business cards but yeah. <laughs> um you know the, the paper resume or the electronic resume you know the you know people submit your resume right like do resumes still matter and i think you, you said um 1482 is when the first resume was created that was an interesting date that i never heard of uh so do they still matter in 2020 and if so what should they look like yeah um i was surprised that it was 1482 and i but i looked it up um but it's leonardo da vinci did the first resume mm. um to raise money from the king of england mm. uh because needed to be able to tell all the skills uh however been a lot of inventions uh and innovation since 1482 right. uh, and so um i just think it was a proxy, right, for experience. Uh, it was a way to measure. Um, but how do you measure um, attitude, right? How do you measure um, the ability, like, you can learn anytime. I've got a phone in my pocket that I can learn anything right now. I can take a, any class from any instructor. I don't have to take a year off to go to school. I think things have changed. And, um, you know, I, I think it just focuses on, you know, where have you been? It doesn't mean, you know, I've worked 10 years at Google. Doesn't the tenure doesn't mean I have 10 years of really good experience working there. Um, and so I, I just don't think it's a, a proxy for experience and it does introduce a bias, right? Um, you're, it opens your mind up when you don't see a resume it's several, you know, we dog food. So the several folks on this team that I admit that if I'd seen your resume first, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have hired you. I wouldn't have talked to you, uh, and because it, it's an inherent bias um, that you know, and so, uh, and it's really around companies um, that I haven't worked with anybody good from that company ever. But, you know, so when you're shortlisting resumes, deciding where, what time, how, you know, we're going to spend time, you're going to screen that person out. Um, so yeah, I just think it, you know, what happens when you remove it? Well, diversity happens. That's the first thing that we see in companies is all of a sudden now you're shortlisting more, more people of color, more women, you know, maybe it's older folks, um, you know, because they did this exercise uh, and passed and it opens you up. You might not have spent the time on them based on the fact that they might have been pigeonholed to a certain industry or certain companies because they didn't go to that school or didn't go to school. That's very true, especially the school part too. It's like usually people look like, where did they go to school? And they set their bias right away on schooling which yeah you know it doesn't tell the tale at all i mean it's no it tells you yeah it says that you worked really hard when you were a kid to do all the right things to get into that school <laughs> and uh yeah i just don't i, I just you know i shouldn't i'm not going to take you away from anybody but i don't think that uh and, and also skills are finite right like yeah i used to get paid to play basketball but uh, I'm not the best guy for the, for, you know, for your, for your, for your work team right now, because I haven't played in a while, you know, so you're rusty. And I think we put such a high value on, you know, keywords of, you know, but what have you done recently? 
So what are three apps that you can't live without? Ah, well, one would be, um, you know, Spotify, uh, one, um, Kindle, uh, big Kindle, uh, audible for, you know, you know, walking around and, and, uh, so yeah, we do a lot of reading. Um, that's a kind of a core thing for, for, for kind of the ethos of the company is to, to always be learning because the business is the boss and, um, the only constant is change. So, but those are, those are, I guess my four would be intercom because, uh, you know, early on I could be at dinner and, um, still be able to service, you know, customer support. How about book recommendations? You mentioned you love to read. So what, what about book recommendations? Wow. So I read uh, close to a book a week since 2007. Um, so it's like, with or what stage like there's so many different topics that i would recommend um you know one like recently i'm, I'm rereading the messy middle uh by belsky uh like it's a great book um team topologies was one that i recently read around you know the designing of teams and you know technology teams and building products um but you know there's a lot a lot of books for that i recommend based on you know um, you know, what you're facing at the time, like just in time learning, you know, I run into the problem, go learn it. So then it's practice, have the practical experience. Got it. So you're super busy building a, a company filtered AI and family. So we're in a pandemic, but, uh, you know, nor, like, what, what do you like to do outside of, outside of work? Uh, work stops. Um, yeah, I, I actually shouldn't say that. Cause I think that, you know, um, you have to have the work-life balance. And uh, I think a lot of uh, first-time entrepreneurs burn themselves out um, and think that you should always be, always be working, but there's, it's diminishing returns. Um, so, you know, I spend, you know, spend time with family and my son, um, uh, do a lot of Legos. We built a Lego Nintendo last week, um, which is great. Um, but, you know, I do spend a you know, time reading, uh, like the exercise, um, can't travel anymore. So pandemic times are, uh, you know, spend a lot of time in Boston and experiencing it like a tourist, which is, you know, you forget to do sometimes. Yeah, no, that's good. Got to use that time effectively. I've picked up the guitar again. So, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, well, Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your professional journey and, you know, all the stories around entrepreneurship, all the great work you're doing with filtered AI and um, you know, best of luck building a, a tech pillar company for Boston. Thanks so much for having me, Keith. I really appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.